If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two of George Washington. In this episode, you'll hear the story of George Washington's near assassination at 19 years old and the unfortunate event that would make him immune to smallpox. Later in life, he would need this immunity to lead his men through the horrors of Valley Forge. Some would call it fate, but George would say it was providence. Obviously, you didn't go either of those directions, and you spent many years fighting the British. And your leadership is responsible for a lot of British deaths. How would, what would your father say about that? Was your father a loyal British man? Oh my, good question. All Washingtons were loyal. Would he have become a rebel? He was a man of a great character. He also uh, was faithful to family, a country, and his God. It's something that I struggled with, and quite frankly, most of us struggled with. I mean, uh, after the French and Indian War, uh, up to that uh, point, England had pretty well ignored us. They gave us charters, uh, they uh, gave us governors, and, and that we could run our own colony. And so we did. We ran our colony. The governor oversaw it. We even taxed ourselves and had budgets and and had Minutemen and militia and what have you. But after the French and Indian War, the king and parliament all of a sudden start paying more attention to us. Uh, All this time, they had been getting very, very rich on the American callings as well as all of their colonies. This was to enrich the coffers of the king, of parliament, of the aristocracy, of merchants. Uh, We, as well as all the colonies, were shortchanged, but still, we had opportunities in the colonies that you couldn't get in England anymore, and so we were doing okay. But then in 63, they started passing some acts. With every act they passed, they limited our freedoms. They began taking away rights of all Englishmen from us. And then they started sending troops over uh, to make sure we obeyed. And then they started passing laws that infringed on the basic laws that were established years before. And so we tried very, very hard over a 12-year period of time to talk to the king and parliament and saying, this is not right. I mean, that's where the Boston uh, massacre occurred. That's where the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor occurred. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where uh, uh, Lexington and Concord. We just wanted our rights. They kept on turning the screw and making things worse and worse. And so in 74, we got together at a Continental Congress and said, what can we do? And we we once again sent some petitions over, but they were pretty well ignored. And it was, now we did have people in parliament that did talk in favor of us all along the way, really, but they just viewed us as uppity colonists. We weren't really full-blooded Englishmen. And they said, we don't have to know what's going on over there. You're represented by us. We said, we're not represented in Parliament. Well, we're kind of looking after you. No, you're not looking after us. They even pulled Benjamin Franklin in uh, (laughs) and cross-examined him uh, while he was over there representing Pennsylvania and some of the other colonies. And in parliament, they went after him. We actually have his transcript of what he said, which is an interesting read. Interrogating Benjamin Franklin, I feel like it would be really hard to outsmart him. It was, but they were so convinced, don't cloud the issue with facts. We, (laughs) you know, uh, they wanted to treat us like Scotland. 
we will crush them. They wanted to treat us like Ireland. We will crush them. Fortunately, we're 3,000 miles away. And in 76, as we were declaring the Declaration of Independence, they were sending troops over to crush us. Do you know how many troops they sent over? How many? The largest expeditionary force that had only been sent to date, over 30,000 soldiers, Marines, and Navy men. 30,000. They said that, uh, and it took weeks for all the ships to get there. And uh, so all these boats are in the harbor of New York, and they said the masts of the ship, it looked like it was a forest. There were so many of them. Oh, my gosh. How interesting. When, when you the mother refer country. To, yeah. When you refer to the English looking at the Americans like they looked at Scotland and Ireland, that's, that's an interesting comparison because they certainly looked at them as uncivilized barbarians. Maybe barbarians is the right word type people. Would they have seen the Americans like that just – you know, like they're just people living in the woods, uncivilized, and like they would in Scotland? Is it kind of like that? They would have looked at us as not equals, quite frankly. Uh, we're equals. just unsophisticated. We're just uh, a rabble, quite frankly. Oh, no, there are some exceptions. And, and actually, uh, some uh, aristocrats came over. They would have been the fourth, fifth, sixth sons that came over with some wealth and got some land and had some name, but quite frankly, not as good as the mother country. Come on. And so we were, we were inferiors. Uh, we were just resources for them. Um, we couldn't manufacture anything. All the raw materials we had to send to them, and they manufactured things, and then they would send them back to us as finished products. But they would not send firsts or seconds. They would send thirds, and a lot of times not all the parts came. And it didn't matter to them. And then they would uh, charge fees both to sell the raw products and then exorbitant fees to sell the finished products. And so uh, we were definitely on the low end of the economy. But once again... We still did well, and especially if you watched over income and expenses. And as a businessman, uh, I did that. But quite frankly, lots of others didn't, and they had to borrow lots and lots of money. From where do you think? From London. <laughs> they charged exorbitant rates. And so um, we, again, like all the other colonies, were just there to make them richer. You were their resources. Tell me if I'm stretching this. General Washington, sometimes I ask questions that are, are direct and they could be offensive. If I ever say something offensive, I, it's, I'm not meant to be. I am, I'm just curious. But my question is, when you talk about the, the way the English looked at the colonists as resources, it, to me that feels a little bit as the way the colonists would have looked at slaves. Are, are there similarities? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we're all born into a society. We don't create it. And to us, it is what's natural. There's a natural order of things. As colonists, I was born a colonist. And these relationships with England, although we were on the lower end, it's still how life worked. And you just learn to live within that. And it's been go going on for centuries and also on the continent, you know, coming out of the feudal system, they're just the way certain things worked, and you did it until you didn't do it anymore because you come to a place in one's life where it doesn't make sense for one reason or not. In the 1700s, slavery was just part of the natural order of things. And I alluded uh, before, in some cases, there were uh, slave owners that uh, treated uh, their slaves well. Other, other times, uh, there wasn't. And my family, uh, we felt as though we treated our servants well. My opinions changed over time from the standpoint of 
the efficacy of slavery. Things happen that begin to get you thinking. Um, inalienable rights and created equal and guaranteed justice and freedom, all of these things. And of course, those were the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. And when you have cultures that go a certain way for hundreds and thousands of years, to turn that culture in another direction takes time. It's hard to untie um, some of those knots once they're tied, isn't it? It is. And so father dies at 11, I inherited 10 slaves, uh, servants, and they're expected to do what they do because in the South, many, many people have slaves, even uh, in the middle colonies in the North, much, much fewer slaves because they didn't have the, the huge plantations of the South. But eventually over time, uh, especially after the Revolutionary War, whenever a war comes along, there are big changes that occur. And, and we were no uh, uh, difference because now from 13 colonies, you, you get to know people from other parts uh, of the nation and, and different uh, uh, ways of approaching things and different economies. And, and, and I think that is something that began to change me over time so that in my will there, I did put the manumission of all my slaves and had hoped that others would follow that. And since uh, the early 80s, I had been looking to make some changes, but l law was law and there's only so much you could do. So, yeah, I yes. understand. Well, yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about before your military career, you became a surveyor in Culpeper County, I think, in uh, 1949 or 1749, 1750, somewhere around there. Yeah. Could you tell me about that, John? So at age 15, I did not become an ensign in the Navy. That was uh, 1747, I believe that, uh, 32, 15, 1747. Yep. Later that year, actually the following year when I was 16, Colonel Fairfax, he controlled land of his cousin, Lord Thomas Fairfax, that had land in northern Virginia that extended into the Shenandoah Valley. It was a large parcel of land. Uh, you could have put Connecticut and Rhode Island within the boundaries of the land he inherited. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and had land left over. And so uh, Colonel Fairfax uh, was uh, responsible for overseeing that. And Lord Fairfax said, well, would you start surveying some of the land? And so Colonel Fairfax's oldest brother, George, decided that uh, he would lead uh, the survey crew. And he had taken a, a liking to me. So I, when I went to Belvoir uh, with Lawrence, and his wife, and the younger brother, uh, uh, George William, took a liking to me. And so he brought me along on the serving survey thing when I was 16. I loved it. Now, I, I was just there to fetch things. There were surveyors. There were helpers there. There were people that had provisions and took care of the livestock just there to have fun in the woods and swim. And uh, but I watched everything that was going on and see, I, I love the wilderness. It, it was my environment that I could excel at. Plus, I did have a little geometry. And uh, one of the books uh, that we read about geometry was how geometry worked in surveying. And so they had examples there that I kind of like, but now I got to go and actually survey. And so... <laughs> where surveying was just an example of geometry. Now I'm out there and watching these guys actually shooting lines and tangents and connecting them and pulling the chains in between there to get distances and cutting trees so the line could continue and using uh, uh, markers uh, or sometimes just uh, identifying a tree that was on a corner place. I was fascinated with that. And so when I came back, when I was 16, once again, the Fairfaxes noticed that I was excelling at something and they, they really uh, liked me. 
And so at age 17, at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, I took some training in surveying, and that's when I was appointed, probably because of the Fairfaxes, to a new county, uh, Culpeper County. Uh, and so I, uh, I went there within a week, completed my first survey, and then continued to do that. I was well suited for it. I loved math, and people saw how well I did and how hard I worked. I mean, if there was light out, I was working, and I was making some money. And so after two years, I had accumulated 1,000 500 acres on my own. From the money you made from serving? From not only money, but some of the surveyors, uh, you know, I'd say, well, can I, instead of having a fee, can I have an acre if I was surveying 40, if I was surveying, surveying 160, can I have 10 acres, you know, that type of thing. And people thought really? that was a great, great deal. And so I just cut off as part of the fee. So I, I, not everybody could do that. And I was a surveyor until I was 19, until another turn in the road occurred. Before you go to that turn, did that work ethic, is that the way that your father worked? Is that where your work oh, ethic absolutely. came from? It absolutely all the, was. All the Washingtons that I knew, but all of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, all were hard workers because in England we had no future. The Roundheads, the Puritans came to power and great-great-grandfather Lawrence, who was an Anglican minister, was demoted to a small parish and he died in poverty. And so there was no future for the Washingtons in England. Unless they worked. And unless they came over and tried their hand at tobacco in the colonies in the 1650s is interesting. So, so before you tell me that, that next turn, when, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I, I understand that much later in the Revolutionary War, there was something called the Culpeper Spiring, and you worked in Culpeper County. Is that where the name came from? Does it have something to do? Is there some connection there? Yes. Yes, that's where it came from. Is, is there anything else you'd want to say on that? It was a very successful, but uh, we didn't have a, uh, you may say spy ring, but it was an intelligence gathering service. But I referred to those 30,000 troops that uh, were occupying New York Harbor. They attacked on Long Island, Brooklyn Heights. We had fortified Brooklyn Heights. We had 12,000 soldiers there, them to attack uphill, and so that we could defeat them like we did at Bunker Hill. And there were three passes. There was a bridge, or excuse me, a ridge line, and there were three passes through those ridges. Maybe there were four. I, again, I... I a little foggy, but we had troops that w were adequate that we could keep the British at bay. What we didn't know was there was a fifth pass, maybe it was a fourth pass, uh, called um, Jamaica Pass. And so when they attacked on a frontal basis, 10,000 soldiers very quietly had slipped through the Jamaica Pass and they came behind the troops on the ridge, and the slaughter happened. We lost hundreds, over a thousand, I think 2,000 men. Many of them were so young they didn't have beards yet because oh our goodness. intelligence, our intelligence was faulty. And I looked from the heights and grieve that we were losing so many brave young men and the Hessians, no mercy. And uh, the young boys trying to go through the swamps and the Hessians with their long rifles and then the bayonets was able to stick them like pigs and then they would turn their guns and the, uh, the sabers there 
were not just two-sided, the bayonets, they were three-sided, and so it just severed the meat, and as they pulled out, infection would occur, and death. So after that, we set up intelligence gathering surfaces in many, many different areas. As you remember, I told the, the Continental Congress that I wasn't up to the task, but that doesn't mean I couldn't learn, and it doesn't mean that I would give up. And that's how the Culpeper intelligence gathering process, that's what started it. Yeah. That incident at the Jamaica Pass. Okay, yes, it's Culper, uh, not Culpeper, but Culper. Um, oh, it's Culper. Firing. Yeah, Culper, okay. yes. So then you were going to say that there was another turn that, that happened here. And I- I'm guessing, and I may be wrong on this, but this is a- after the Culper, after serving there, was that when you got training and got command of a Virginia regiment? What happened next? Okay. Well, at age 19, uh, it wasn't uh, till a, a year later that I was involved with the Virginia militia. At age 19, my eldest brother, Lawrence, got his tuberculosis advanced. He was very, very sick. He went to England, saw the best doctors, they said, you need to go to a warmer climate and that Barbados might be the place to go. And so my brother went to Barbados, took me with him. I spent a couple of months there and he was getting worse. And so he sent me back and he went to Bermuda. Uh, While I was there, within a couple of weeks, I caught smallpox. Mm. Uh, It was a very virulent uh, strain of it. And many, many people died. I did not. Uh, But it did inoculate me. So when I served in the army, I was immune to the smallpox, which was, quite frankly, the biggest killer during the uh, Revolutionary War on both sides. Uh, Although five, six thousand men died in combat or as results of wounds during the Revolutionary War. And although 10,000 died on prison ships, over 20 thousand died from disease, starvation, or exposure. Once again, I'm in a situation that you might think, oh no, I got smallpox. But the hand of providence was on me, preparing me for something later in life that I could not, could not even imagine. And I came back, and then shortly later, he came back, and he said, I'm going to die. I need to put my house in order. And George, you need to follow our father and our grandfather. You need to be part of the militia. You need to seek to be part of the House of Burgess. They're a representative. And you need to be a vestryman and a warden in the Anglican Church. So we're, you know, we're, we're right back to family, country, and faith. And shortly thereafter, I closed... Uh, Uh, the surveying business, and I went to Governor Dinwiddie. Since Lawrence was leader, I asked to be put in over his, the uh, militia that he was uh, leading, and Dinwiddie said, no, I'm going to break it down into four, and so I'll have four different militia leaders, which was really a political move. Now he would have four people that would be ingratiated to him. Probably politics is not a big issue uh, where you're from, but it was a very big issue at that time. <laughs> um, so, so I got a, one of the four, and then eventually, because others, for one reason or another, uh, didn't persist, I became a militia leader of, of all four. And that's how I got into the Virginia militia there. I also, when uh, at the same time, when I just became the leader of, of the one Uh, One group, he got word that although we beat the French and took over the colonies, they went north into Canada. Into Quebec? Quebec. uh, Yes, Quebec uh, there. But they were coming down the Ohio River, Mississippi, and were going to go all the way to New Orleans, which they also owned. So they just wanted to keep us from going any further there. And they're also after furs and, and other items there. So they were building a series of forts down uh, the river, down the Ohio. The French. And 
the French were. And Governor Dinwiddie wanted to send somebody to tell them, go no further, that the king owns the land all the way to the Ohio River. And so I volunteered to go. He sent me uh, because of my vast experience of a month uh, in a surveying trip when I was 16. Few other <laughs> people had that experience. And so off I go, uh, which is a whole nother story, Tony. But uh, I did make it all the way up to almost Lake Erie, told the French to get out. The colonel said, Mon ami, uh, no, I do not think so. We are not going to do this. And so I needed to hurry back uh, to tell uh, Governor Dinwiddie that they're not going to get out. And on the way back, I almost died. But that's another story. I did get back. Um, well, I don't think you can skip a story where you almost died two times. I think you have to tell that story. <laughs> well, it was, so I wanted to get back quickly. Although we had four horses and two different people uh, with the carriage, I went back with my translator, Christopher Giss, who spoke uh, several different native languages. We hurried back on foot. And this was winter time. And while we were at one of the towns, the Indian towns called Murdering Town, which was aptly named. That, that was what we, the Indians named it? That's what it was called. Uh, I've seen other names for it, but that's what it was called, Murdering Town. And there was a, a Native American fellow there that said he would show us a shortcut to where we're going. And Christopher, who had been there for, gosh, many, many years, I don't know exactly how many, but I'd say at least a dozen to maybe 18 years, and knew the area, not, not that far out typically. He just didn't trust this guy, but I said, hey, let's go. And so we spent the morning trekking through the area, and the Indian said, well, Major Washington, can I carry your pack? And I said, yes, because I was lagging behind. Now, Gist in the Indian, they're very healthy, very strong, moving quickly. Although I was not, not strong, the pace they were setting was wearing me down. So I was falling behind a little bit. And so, you know, that was good of, of him. But then a little bit further along, he said, well, can I carry your musket? And that, that alarmed me a little bit. Uh, I said, no, no, I'll, I'll cut. And we continue to go on. Uh, Christopher Gist says, we're not heading southeast. We are heading northeast. And I am suspicious. And so we talked to him. He said, oh, uh, I, I have a cabin up here. I need some provisions. No, okay. And so then soon we get to a clearing. We come out of the forest and then the Indian is ahead of us. Well, he gets about 15 paces ahead of us and looks, you know, back to make sure we're keeping up. But as soon as we came out of the forest and went into the clearing, he whips around, takes his musket and shoots at us. I mean, this is point blank range. And this is an Indian that knows what he's doing. He's not going to miss. But Tony, he missed both of us. <laughs> and so we run and grab him before he can reload and down to the, on the ground and tie his wrists behind him. He's, he's not a weak person. It took quite a bit to get to him. It's winter, uh, breathing hard. The air is cold going in and out. But we are able to subdue him, and then we just say, you know, what are we going to do? You know, it's late in the morning, and Christopher pulls his scalping knife out and said, uh, I can make sure that he doesn't alert to anyone. And, and I said, that's not the honorable thing to do. I don't recall exactly what his words were, but he, he seemed to be indicating that uh, Tidewater honor has nothing to do with the realities of the frontier. We let him go, and it may be at the, our life's peril. And I said, that's what we're going to have to do. And I don't want him tied up here because then wild animals would get him. So we cut his bonds, and he takes off. And then we take off southeast. He took off north. So the rest of the day, we decided we're headed to the Allegheny River. We'd go two different directions, and then at a certain point, back together again, and we were going to walk across the ice because it's winter. 
but the river had not frozen all the way over. Oh, so we were stuck. We were stuck. And, you know, there were chunks of ice going down. And so we decided the only option was to build a raft. We did the best we could to do a makeshift raft. We don't have rope or anything, so we use grapevines to, to latch it together. Oh, my goodness. And it's late, late in the day. We got a couple of big poles to make sure we can hit the bottom uh, of the river to stabilize the raft. And it's flowing. It's flowing pretty, uh, pretty significantly with these chunks of ice, pretty large. They're larger than the raft. But we're stay here. They follow our steps. You know, we're, we're dead. And so we attempted to make our way over. And, and we used uh, the poles to push some of uh, the chunks away, but then we'd lose control of the raft. And at some point, even half of the way over, one of the big chunks pushes one of the corners half down. It shoots me out of the raft to the water. And all I can do is grab just one of the raft. But I held on for dear life because it was for dear life. Gist was able to get me back on board, though the river is flowing and ice is flowing, and we've one uh, stick left, and then now an island is coming up, and let's get over as far as we can with the to the island. We're unable to get over there, and so we jump with the raft, we jump into the water and swim to the island with our packs. In the freezing cold water. In the freezing cold water, oh and my we spend God. the night there. Oh my! And of course, everything's everything's wet. So we're everything's able to start a fire? wet. We uh, Christopher was able to, uh, you know, he's he's a frontiersman. He was able to start a fire, and you always you have your shirt and you have your uh, your medal, and you're able to get a spark, and you know you do what you can to start it up. But we got a pretty good fire going, and we're able to dry, uh, or not totally dry, but at least get most of it out. We were able to get some amount of sleep. And, you know, during the winter, there's not that much light out. But we woke up the next morning. Christopher had gotten some frostbite in his fingers and toes. I didn't have any frostbite uh, for some reason. But the river had frozen. It got so cold. Uh, so it was it's a good thing we were able to dry our clothing off, or at least to the point where there wasn't a lot of ice. And we walked across uh, <laughs> the rest of the river and got to the other side. And so once again, the hand of Providence was on us. And then we went to his camp, and then I went the rest of the way uh, and reported to uh, Governor Dinwiddie. I had kept a diary all along the way. It got wet, but it was I could still write in it. And he said, would you write out from your notes what occurred? And so I did. There's copies of that uh, still available. Uh, they, what they did is they sent the text of what I wrote to London. They had it published uh, in the newspapers. <laughs> I became a hero. <laughs> uh, because I had faced the enemy and I had faced the Indians. And I'm just a young kid from Virginia that, that really, if you talk to Gist, he would just laugh because I was wet behind the ears. We also <laughs> went with, with an Indian chief, Kanichturan, that also would say that I was totally inadequate. I was a good kid, but I had no idea how to parlay with the Indians, which I didn't. I had had no idea how to parlay with the French, which I didn't. Even the French uh, disparaged me in their private notes because what do I know? I didn't speak French. I spoke no languages. I wasn't a diplomat. I was there because I volunteered and I spent a month in the wilderness when I was 16. Everything that you did, it was all learn as you go. You got it. That's yeah, the colonies. So, Welcome to the colonies, Tony. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking about this. So here you are, a young kid, 19, somewhere like that. And at, at some point here, you get command. This is, a, I'm moving ahead a little bit here. 
When you uh, got command of men and you were talking about the Ohio Valley, where it was your responsibility to go in and, t and tell the French to leave because they were trying to set up forts along the Ohio Valley, you would have been part of the British Army. Well, I'm militia. Br uh, British militia. Colonial militia. Under, uh, but they would have seen you as British, though, wouldn't, wouldn't they have looked at you as British? Because you well, were under British... Yes, uh, they would look at me as a just an imitation of British. I would be colonial, and they held colonials in great uh, contempt. Uh, 21, when I'm, I'm part of the militia there, I wanted to aspire of the regular army, but they said, just no way. Right, because yeah. you weren't born there. I wasn't born there, yeah. Yeah. Well, my guess, my, well, guess what my question is, is that as you are part of the colonial militia, going into the Ohio Valley to tell the French that they have to leave. The French would have looked at you as taking orders from the British. For all intent and purposes, they would have said yes. that you, you're British. So yes. it, as, I, as, I'm, as I'm now aware of that, and then I look at what happened later in the, in the American Revolution where the French basically get into bed with us and say, okay, we're now going to send guns and ships and Lafayette and troops and everything. We're, we're going to support you 100%. At what point do the colonists stop being British and the French look at them as something different? Yeah, that, that is a good transition point. So in 1763... The uh, French and Indian War is over. It's large tracts of land going all the way to the Ohio and Mississippi, uh, but bordered by Lake Erie, Huron, uh, Superior, the others. So in 63, the colonists, we thought that we would be able to go in and colonize that area there, but the king said, no, we couldn't go. And then from 63 to 75, First Continental Congress, 74, they just started to increase their control and take away more and more rights. And so it was over this period, 11, uh, maybe 12 years to 75, 1775. So it is this change of the direction of Mother England to treating us the way they were treating. We're English subjects. We should have all the rights. Part of that is representation in Parliament. They would not give it to us. And they kept on taking things away. They would send troops over. Boston was getting testy with them. They sent troops down from, down from Quebec uh, after because uh, England, uh, we also got the northern area there. But they sent troops down there into Boston to keep order. You know, Boston looked at it as occupation. And they continued to say, we're going to have these 2,000 troops here because of the danger of the Indians. And we were saying, what do you mean? You know, uh, we've had Indians here for, you know, 130 <laughs> years, and you never sent troops. Now you're you sending, sending troops? troops? <laughs> now, yeah, you know, the French aren't here. And, 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 you know, it was just this serious thing, a series of things that made perfect sense to them. But to us, there was a, an Irish uh, parliamentary in Barre was his last name. I forget his first name. Maybe it was Isaac uh, that stood uh, up in uh, the House of uh, Commons, argued uh, <laughs> with, with his other um, members of parliament there because uh, he was uh, in the French Indian War as well saying, gentlemen, you keep saying that you have watched over the colonies as, as a loving parent. He said, that's not true. You have treated them poorly. He says, I know how you treat uh, people. And it, <laughs> yeah, and it was just really funny in Parliament there. And he was brutal. We were still loyal to 74, uh, even 75. We were not rebelling in 75. We were taking up, uh, you know, causes and necessities for taking up arms to protect our rights. We weren't rebelling. You know, they, uh, we were bringing gunpowder. We are. So we were having gunpowder, artillery, muskets. And that's why they marched uh, out of Boston through Lexington to Concord and uh, burned some stores there. 
And so that was the first time that there was, was really bloodshed. And of course, uh, then the march back to Boston, uh, which was horrendous uh, for the British. But then 12,000 uh, Minutemen showed up from New England and surrounded on the land side of Boston, uh, although they still had uh, uh, the Navy that brought supplies in. And that's when I was elected commander-in-chief of the Colonial Army in Continental Army in June 18th, because we realized that a militia would not be adequate to keep the British at bay. So in 1775, this wasn't an active rebellion. You you weren't getting together with your people saying, we got to go do this. We got to get our own freedom. You literally, it sounds to me like you're acting more like just someone's being attacked. And you're trying to get the equipment to defend what you have because you're being attacked. Is that the way it felt? Uh, At that point, we didn't feel as though we were being attacked. We felt as though our rights, we... We kept on reasoning with them uh, all along the way. As late as 75, we, we sent uh, the uh, Dove petition to them saying, can't we work this out? And, uh, you know, as late as 75, there were some that saying, folks, we've tried and tried and tried. Don't you get it? They're only going to come back with even more demands. And we had been trying for all that time. To uh, 75, I I gave hope that we'd be able to resolve this. Somewhere along the line, somebody in Parliament might be able to convince the others, but they had such a high financial stake. Money was to be made, and these young whippersnappers uh, tell them what to do. So uh, that's why uh, much of our literature, uh, we talked uh, tyranny, and we talked slavery. I mean, we're free men. We're British subjects. We would, uh, we felt as though we were being enslaved um, by a tyrant, not a beneficent dictator, but a tyrant. We weren't going to stand for it. Uh, we, if need be, we'd take the next step. And then it was obvious we had to go to the next step. We didn't declare independent until July 2nd and then on the 4th. But during that time, the King Parliament, they already started. Uh, occupying New York Harbor with 30,000 troops. So they decided uh, that they would crush us because it takes four, six, eight weeks to come across the Atlantic there. And so they'd be in in route for a period of time there. So, you know, it was inevitable. Um, I can't even, I can't even imagine what the reaction, like what people would have been thinking, you know, just all of a sudden there's troops everywhere. Yeah. It had to be apocalyptic. Yeah, and you know, uh, there are different estimates as to how many people were patriots, how many were loyalists, and how many were in the middle. <clears throat> and then those in the middle would be broke up into those that just had made up their minds or those that were saying, ah, war, we can make a lot of money. Or those that religiously would not take up weapons to fight a war because... Uh, most notably the Quakers, but they weren't the ones. And, of course, they were in uh, Pennsylvania primarily, but uh, also some of the other colonies. So we were not totally united. Possibly less than 20% of the people remained loyal. Less than 20% of the people uh, were adamant uh, and were patriots. And, And sometimes during the eight and a half years of war, there was even fewer that were patriots because they had given so much. They had given fathers, sons, brothers, and the British had made their homes, destroyed their fields, imprisoned people, and all the other terrible things that happened in war that I won't mention. And then, uh, too, the British of the Algonquin Confederacy, five of the six tribes sided with uh, the British and so the Native American, that uh, confederacy, was very much on their sides. The only one of the tribes that sided uh, with us were the Oneida. And the Oneida women brought us corn from their own winter storage at Valley Forge. Uh, what, what a wonderful thing. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, that, uh, what that would have been like. General Washington, 
your life is so interesting because, and in our time has been studied so much because of what you have accomplished. And, you know, the stories that you've told here today really give me a picture of where all of that came from. I'm actually about to run out of time in about five minutes. And I, uh, I'm hoping that we had another time we could talk more about what happened after the French Indian War and, and later in life. But uh, I'd like to ask you a couple quick questions before we wrap sure. this up. First of all, what would be your general perception of the, the Indians? Uh, oh my gosh, the Indians, great respect for just the way they, they moved in the woods and their knowledge of it, their bravery, their ferocity, but also their wisdom of their chiefs and the matrons. A matron, older woman, that was part of the decision-making they had a form of democracy there. They would get together and the different tribes would have the opportunity to speak and talk. And then the elders uh, would make a decision what was best for all of the tribes, not just one or the other tribe. All, all of the tribes would live with that. It, it was an example to me. There was great slaughter. Treaties were made. They were violated. One of the problems was we didn't have a large enough military force to keep the settlers from going west. We, we could not honor some of those treaties. Well, I don't know that we honored any of them. But I think that's we accurate. Just, yeah, we, we couldn't. And I don't know what happened after 1799, but, but hopefully at some point the uh, deluge uh, moving west would be more orderly and uh, treaties uh, could be kept. Uh, I had great admiration for them. They were also ruthless in war. Uh, really? Oh, yes, which is another story. Okay. The next question I wanted to ask is, if I was to ask you the exact same question, just your perception of something, and before I say the word, I mean, you're going to know what it is right away because you were involved in so many of them, I mean, throughout your life. If I were to say, what is your impression of war? What, what would you say? I hate war. See, I, I would have guessed that you would have felt that way, like most people, but it seems to me in your time, war is opportunity. Is that correct? For many, I did not take up the mantle of the commander of the Continental Army for opportunity. I took it up because our rights were being taken. What we had worked so hard for, for 150 years, was no longer available, our rights. And so we were fighting tyranny. We were fighting uh, a king and parliament for our basic rights. I see. Yeah, so it had to be done because you got to fight for your rights. If somebody's going to take them, you got to fight for them. There's no question. When we talk about founding fathers, of course, your name is number one. And other founding fathers, would we would consider Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, which unfortunately we didn't get uh, to talk about at all, and, and James Madison, I think. Would Aaron yes. Burr be considered a founding father? <laughs> by some, very definitely. Uh, by others, um, <laughs> ingloriously so. Uh, but there are others that were great contributors. Uh, Robert Morris, Governor Morris, you know, Hancock. John or Wilson, that uh, all were instrumental in the Constitutional Convention. Sam Adams, you know, it goes on and on. So there are many, many founding fathers. Paul Revere would be another one. Would you want to be remembered as a courageous general or a great president? Tony, neither one. I would want to be remembered as an honest man. Last question. I have two last questions, and then we're then I'm I'm going to thank you for your time. The first one is, what in your life do you feel was left incomplete? Slavery. You wish you would have that you you could have done more with that. Yes. Okay. And last, how are your teeth? Well, uh, when I lost my first tooth when I was 26, I had one left <laughs> when I became president. So the proper question is, how is your tooth? <laughs> I, 
I don't even know if we need to say any more than that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. It's the reason why my farewell speech, I didn't talk it. I wrote it, and it was published in the papers because the dentures were very difficult, although I had uh, Dr. Greenberg out of Philadelphia, the best uh, dentist in the colonies, helping me. Yeah, one tooth doesn't, uh, does, well, doesn't help. Well, I certainly appreciate you allowing me to end on, on that note because I will tell you, <laughs> in the future here, we're all glad that uh, you didn't end up with perfectly white, flawless teeth. Because considering all of your other great qualities, we just assumed there had to be at least one flaw that you had, considering all the flaws that we have. But uh, I'm so thankful for your time, and hopefully we will be able to do this again sometime. But your life really does show us all that struggle is part of life. And if you embrace that struggle and give your all, you, you certainly can do a lot of things regardless of where you come from. Is there anything that you, you would li like to say as we wrap this up? Actually, I like what you just said. Struggle is part of life. To embrace it, we can do many, many great things. When a culture, when a society feels that they must do everything they can to be comfortable, then it is all about themselves. When they see that there is struggle that other people have, and then if they reach out and help, that's called virtue. When you do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but you esteem others above yourself. Matter of fact, we said the U.S. Constitution would fail if the American people ever focused more on themselves than they did their neighbors. And so... Tony, I know we don't have time, but the question I would ask you and anybody else is what are you doing to make sure that our Constitution, our Democratic Republic, will continue to be healthy and strong? Are you looking out for your neighbor or for yourself? I think that is a great place to leave this, and I think that's a fair question. General mm -hmm. Washington... I'm so thankful for your time. I hope we get to do this again, and I wish you good health. When George Washington answered the question, if he would rather be known as a great general or a great president, would you have expected any other answer? It's hard to imagine what the world would look like if any of the events discussed in this call had changed the trajectory of his life. If he had died or ended up on the side of the British, I suppose I'd be speaking with an English accent right now. In a time when we wonder if one person can make a difference, George Washington shows us that our actions can cause a ripple that will last through generations. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that when you subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you're making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.